Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Dr. Stephen Spinelli with me. Uh, Stephen is currently the president of Babson College and has been since July of 2019. Previously, he's held roles such as Chancellor of Thomas Jefferson University, President of Philadelphia University, and the co-founder of Jiffy Lou. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. I am honored to be here uh, and to uh, talk with a, an esteemed interviewer like yourself. <laughs> you don't know that yet. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> well, but your reputation you. precedes you, so I'm, okay, I appreciate I'm it. anxious to test it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so, you know, take us back to the beginning, you know, for those of us that don't know you as well, you know, where you grew up, your family situation, you know, what type of kid you were, things like that. <laughs> That's a, it's very nice of you and very interesting question when you get to what kind of kid was I, um, grew up in Springfield, Mass, which is, uh, you know, just 90 miles west of, uh, west of, of Babson. Which is interesting because uh, I'll get back to this, but I'll get back to the youth part. But when I was uh, deciding to get an MBA, I wanted to do an MBA part time. And I drew a 90 mile radius around Springfield. And I, at that time, you know, there was no distance learning. So you had to get, you know, get to the campus. But I thought that's about as much as I could tolerate as a commute yeah. from Springfield. And uh, Babson was 89 and a half miles away. So if it was a half mile further, I wouldn't have had Babson on my list of crazy. potential MBA. So uh, yeah. the Springfield thing is, is super interesting to me. Grew up in a very Italian-American family. Not unlike, you know, lots of, uh, I, I would be second generation. My uh, parents were first generation American. My grandparents came over. So very Italian community. My parents' first language was Italian. Uh, lived in Springfield a long time was very lucky, got a scholarship to a private school in Lenox, Mass, which was good experience because it sort of got me out of the neighborhood, uh, which, which uh, it was actually a lovely uh, neighborhood in a lot of ways um, for, you know, sort of growing up. It wasn't, it was a very, very blue collar or dark blue collar uh, neighborhood. We, uh, you know, very working class, lower middle class uh, neighborhood. Uh, and so you, you weren't exposed to a lot of broader thinking. The prep school got me into this environment that was bizarre, uh, you know, for me, where kids had a car. I said, oh, you know, yeah. only yeah. grown-ups have cars. How could a kid have a car? Yeah. Um, you know, it's in, or would fly home. You've got to be kidding me. I've never <laughs> been outside. Yeah. So, um, so that, was a, that was a good sort of uh, expanding kind of uh, opportunity. Then I got a scholarship, uh, which was important. Uh, well, one, I needed a scholarship to be able to go to college, yeah. but uh, was also uh, important because of where I went. I went to a little college called Western Maryland College, and I got a, uh, they gave me virtually a full ride. And I, I picked, I applied to 11 schools. I, I got into 10 of the 11. The only one I didn't get into was Harvard. And um, I've never forgiven them. For <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I probably wouldn't have gone anyway. Yeah. Uh, but but it's helped me keep a competitive edge uh, anytime we're competing against them, which I like. Um, but but Western Maryland gave me the uh, gave me a full scholarship, so I, I went to whoever they all all ten of the eleven gave me some scholarship in Western Maryland. Now it's now called McDaniel College, gave me a uh, virtually full scholarship. 
So I was able to go to school there and I played football. The football coach at Western Maryland um, was a retired entrepreneur, uh, retired at a very young age and went into coaching, but still had lots of different business interests. He then um, would recruit one or two kids off the team to go work for him Mm. and did that for a number of years. I was one of the people he recruited. Uh, I, I went to run a nursing home in Baltimore City. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing, except I would work hard. And that's what he figured was the best education I could get. Uh, then after you know four or five years, he said, you know, we're, we're developing a pretty good team here. Let's think about uh, doing something big together. Let's, let's re-enter the world of entrepreneurship in a big way uh, and think about something um, it, it was my first exposure to entrepreneurship as a concept, making money, having a job, running a business, all were sort of vaguely in my head. Uh, didn't want to be poor, uh, decided there was, you, know, you could be poor or not poor and not poor was better. So yeah. I'll, I'll take not poor and that I could have some influence on that. Um, but it was a first um conceptualization of an action-oriented perspective on business. You go create the job. You go look at opportunity. And and he was very, very good. He was a good coach. He was a very tough coach and a very tough entrepreneur. Um, We used to say, if if you were in a bar fight, you wanted him on your side. You know, he was a tough guy. Yeah. Uh, But he he was very disciplined, too. And it was the first that the initial, the initial job was about discipline. And he was testing us. Go, go run a 300-bed nursing home. Oh, you failed, you're fired. The, you know, there wasn't a lot in between. Oh, you succeeded, you're on the team. So you know, it was a very clear um, sort of set of standards, which I liked. Uh, and it's, it allowed you to set yourself apart. Just keep working really hard. But very important initial lesson and standard. <clears throat> then the second when he said, let's get together and let's do something big. He was very specific. He said, let's do something big. And, and so uh, I want to start a business that at least everyone in the United States, maybe beyond, mm. uh, would, would want to do. And he, yeah. he kept bringing these criteria into focus. So it's got to be big. It's got to be at least national. It's got to um, have a good margin. It's got to be expansive. We have... And he kept adding the criteria, and it was the first um, sort of formal lessons in opportunity recognition that I got. And I thought, this is really interesting. This isn't, I have a great idea, oh, let me go test it. I have a great idea, I better be rigorous about my understanding of market demand. And that started to say, well, this isn't just luck. Uh, You can learn this stuff. This whole thing about entrepreneurs are, you know, fairy dust. And at birth, you get a little entrepreneurship dust sprinkled on you and you're going to go make a lot of money was, that's not true. You know, we, we could do this. So um, we, we stumbled on, it, it was, it's actually funny. We actually stumbled, stumbled on Jiffy Loop. It, it wasn't, uh, we were looking at um, uh, alternative energy sources mm. and solar energy in particular we were out in Utah looking at this uh, concept and we bumped into a Jiffy Loop and we saw this, we had no idea what it was. And we saw a bunch of cars lined up in front of this thing called a Jiffy Loop. We thought that's kind of interesting. You know, curiosity is an important part of being an entrepreneur, I think. 
And um, we stopped in, the second big lesson I got here was, uh, we said to the guy, I'll never forget, why are all these cars here? And he said, to change your oil. What, what the hell do you think they're here for? <laughs> it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Yeah. We said, well, yeah, no, we did get that. We read the sign, we, we get this 10 minutes, all this stuff you'll do, that's cool. But why all, you know, why so many are out into the street? He said, oh, it's like this every day. We said, oh, you know, market demand. Mm -hmm. But there was, there was a clear indication. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Ogden, Utah. But, I have not. Well, nobody has. Yeah. There, there's almost no cars. In Ogden. There's a, it's a beautiful city. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's, it ain't Boston. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there's not a lot of cars there. So, you know, we immediately said, if, if they're lined up every day in Ogden, Utah, what might they do in Boston? Mm -hmm or New York or Chicago or any of the top markets. And then we got, we got very serious about doing it in market. And I remember the coach said, it's gotta be national in scope. So what, what does that mean? Let's look at the top 30 SMSA, standard metropolitan statistical areas. And let's look at the number of cars. Let's compare that to Ogden, Utah. Let's look at what the capacity utilization and wham, we were into due diligence like crazy. And, and really um, uh, decided that this was a big opportunity for us to have. There were two stores actually in Ogden. Um, and we bought them uh, from, from the, the current owner for uh, not a lot of money. Uh, I thought it was a fortune. Mm. Uh, the coach put in most of the money. Um, I borrowed money from uh, my wife's grandfather to invest. Mm. Um, and I was the youngest guy on the team. So um, I moved to Ogden, Utah, and I learned the business. And I helped to, you know, design the operating plan. I literally worked in the store. Saturday morning at 7.30 until, uh, or Monday morning at 7.30 to Saturday night at 7.30. Every minute that store was open and I took notes and had a dictaphone and really thought about what this meant. And we really looked at issues of scale. And boy, I tell you, the lesson I, I came back with on that is, um, if you start a business, you're gonna work pretty hard. Uh, and you can work hard for one store, you can work, you can't work any harder for a thousand stores. It was only 24 hours a day. There's only a certain amount of worry you can contain yeah. and you're going to fill it up. So you might as well fill it up with a big idea, with a big opportunity. Yeah. Um, so we, we really looked at it and we said, um, we think we can get it to a thousand stores uh, in the United States. Now, a thousand stores in, in roughly it was a, a million dollars a store. So a thousand times a million, we knew how much we needed to capitalize this at. We added up, the coach had, I don't know, five or 10 million and the rest of us had 37 cents. So we had to then figure out how to capitalize. And that was the, the next lesson in entrepreneurship I got was uh, money follows opportunity. If you articulate the nature of the opportunity, the high potential uh, of that opportunity as driven by market demand and clearly uh, uh, can demonstrate a margin. Now we have two stores. So we could really demonstrate, we understood what the margin was. We said, if we can do that, capital will follow. Long story short, we got a, we got a bunch of capital and we started growing the thing. I then moved back to Springfield and said, I wanted to become a franchisee. I wanted to own and operate stores. I had been out in Ogden, I knew what I was doing. I really mm -hmm. believed I could change oil, man. A yeah. lube oil filter, check and fill a differential transmission, the brakes, battery, power steering, fill a washer, washer fluid, vacuum cure, properly inflate the tires all in 10 minutes at one price. And I could do it a lot. Hmm. And I knew what the margins were. And I thought, boy, I could make a ton of dough if I can be the best operator in the world at the, at the front end of this. But I also said, listen, you've learned a lot of lessons, but 
how well embedded are those lessons in? Boy, you don't know a whole lot. You're a young guy and you need to get an MBA. That's when I looked at all the schools within 90 miles of Springfield. And I said, uh, Babson College had a reputation for entrepreneurship. And I said, that is who I am. It was the first time I'd actually seen a college use that word. This, this was, you know, 100 years ago, but it was the first time that, and, and I came to Babson and I just fell in love with it. I mean, I, I was always a decent student, but I wanted to get an A, you know, when I was, came to Babson, I wanted to get rich. So I was, let me tell you, that'll focus your attention in the classroom. And I met some just incredible people. I wrote every paper about Jiffy Lube, oil changes, cars, retail, pricing, everything I did. And I swear to you, I loved when I got an A minus. Because if I got an A, I thought, well, I, I got all the information. If I got an A minus, I'm going to go see the professor and get some free consulting. Mm. Say, so what do you mean this was not right? What if we priced it? And I talked to so many professors, and I, I swear it was, the, it was the most valuable degree in the history of higher education. It, it really made a difference in my life. Um, and toward it took me, I'm very proud of this, actually. For a long time, it took me longer to get an MBA than any other Babson a person in the history of the college it took me seven and a half years to get my MBA. Hmm. I didn't even, at, at the, they told me, I remember getting the note that says you've completed all your degree requirements. You'll get your MBA. And I said, no, I need to take more courses. It's <laughs> another course. I know this professor. I, no, yeah. please don't kick me out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to leave. Yeah. Oh, they kicked me out. They said, you got to go. <laughs> 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 yeah. So yeah. right around that time, uh, we had built a, a very large uh, operation. Uh, we were the largest franchisee in the country. Uh, we owned the stores in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York. Uh, I love Long Island. Long Island has more cars per capita than anywhere but LA. And let me tell you, they are wonderful customers. So I love New York. Um, and we decided uh, that we could sell the company. We sold it to Pennzoil because they needed to secure the, the uh, channel distribution. Another lesson. There is a value cluster. And if you know who your partners are, you know how you, you create value for yourself, for your customer, for your supply chain. When we talk about creating value for stakeholders, understand who those stakeholders are by category and very personally who, who they are. It's the oil, it's the supplier, it's motor oil, it's Penn's oil. It's Jim Shaddix at Pennzoil. I mean, really know who that person is and how you and what how they define uh, creating value. For me, it was it, it was I want to sell this with a big capital gain. I want net worth. For Pennzoil, it was I want to secure a channel of distribution so I have a long term uh, supply chain that I can um, have a, the market will reward me for for having uh, an income stream for a very long time. Understanding that made all the difference. And, and what the price was we were going to get for that. So we sold the company. I had just gotten my MBA. Uh, my personal economic needs were taken care of, at least at that point in life, uh, and decided to go get uh, a doctorate. Before you get there, can I ask a couple yeah. questions? Sure. Yeah. So the the nursing home business, was. did you start that while you were an undergrad? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, All of this is after you've graduated? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that the coach owned the nursing home. Okay. It was one of the businesses he was in. It was uh, in it was in the center of, of Baltimore City. Um, there were some issues going on. And he said, I just need someone that is, you know, back in the day, I was very fit. 
um, I lifted weights. I could go to Baltimore City and take care of myself. And um, I worked hard and was tough. And he said, I want you to get in there and learn. And so it was his nursing home. But this this is after you've graduated or is this? This is literally the day after I graduated. Okay. Can, I graduated can I... May 22nd. I was in the nursing home at May 23rd. Can I ask you what, you know, is it just from the four years of, you know, him coaching you that you had this trust? I mean, you know, this is 1977. Entrepreneurship is not what it is today. No. You know, so I'm right. like at that time, the, you know, people wanted to find the right company, work 38 years, get the good pension, you know, talk to me about how you were comfortable making that decision. Yeah, that's such a good question. You are a very insightful guy. Um, <laughs> it's a really good question because my going into college, I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I took some law classes and um, hated it. And I said, I, I can't live my, I can't live my life that way. Um, and I, I don't want to be poor. So, so I'm gonna, I got to go uh, try to figure out how to make some money. But the coach really taught me that you create value. If you want other people to direct your life, that, that's a decision you're going to make. But then you got to be satisfied with that and live with that. But there is another way. And new venture creation, entrepreneurship, finding value. He used to have those talks all the time. And it, it was in the context of you set a goal that, that is akin to what we did in, on the football field. You know, you, you, you play together as a team. You have a plan. You, you block for someone. You carry the ball. The team scores the touchdown. The team wins. The team loses. Um, he really taught that way. And he integrated that teaching about football into sort of life lessons. It sounds, you know, maudlin, but it, he, he would then say, okay, if you're, you're good, you're tough, you can go to work for me, but only if you aspire to do something more. So I, I don't want employee. I, I got to have employees. I'm not hiring you to be an employee, hiring you to be a partner. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what that means. That was the first big lessons in entrepreneurship. He didn't, I'm not even sure he used that word in my mind now, because I use it all the time. Those are the words, but that's what he meant, that we are the entrepreneur is a builder and we're going to build a business out of these opportunities and we're going to create uh, wealth. And it was the first time that uh, wealth creation became an objective for me. It was about making money. I didn't want to be poor, man. I, I need a check. Yeah. I need to pay my bills. I like a little extra. He taught me about capital gain. He said, you know, if you can get five times your money tomorrow, why would you spend it today? So let's invest the dollars. Let's talk about what investment is. Let's talk about capital gain. Let's talk about wealth. You know, and he's the one that helped me to find wealth as um, I, I, can, I can support my life in my, my lifestyle without working. Yeah. It doesn't mean, and, and I'll, I hope I'll never stop working. He never did. Yeah. Um, but but uh, you could. And let me tell you, the opportunity not to work frees you to work differently. Mm. And, and it made that made a, a big difference. It, it's the reason I'm in education. Yeah. The experience with Jim Heineman at McDaniel College and the whole experience at Babson made me want to be an educator. Mm. Okay, so 1979, you guys are four partners buying. Yeah. Okay, four, talk five. to me. Okay, five. Talk to me um, 
you know about that that's a a large number you know for a business that's you know five different opinions on visions and things well, like no, that and roles there wasn't know, five different opinions okay there may have been five different opinions but there was only one that counted okay the, the coach was in charge okay yeah yeah, we used to <laughs> we used to have knockdown, drag out, throw it. He threw a chair at me in a meeting. Yeah, he was a tough guy. Yeah, <laughs> I think he was. You know, later on, I, I don't know if it was a day later or a week later. He, I said, "Yo, coach, that was a little nuts, man." If you, he said, "Steve, if I wanted to hit you with the chair, I'd have hit you with the chair." <laughs> I was just yeah. sending a message, to the guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, but but. He was willing and encouraged those really significant debates. Ultimately, I got to say, he did. He was he was a tough guy, and he would make a decision. But um, boy, we had knockdown, drag out. We we used to have. I shouldn't even say this. We used to have this this um, one thing where he would put a bottle of bourbon in the middle of the table, and we would sip bourbon, and we had to make a decision by the time the bottle was. <laughs> and yeah. you could tell the. Uh, the, the magnitude of the problem uh, was reflected in the size of the bottle that he would put. He put a, you know, 10% of the bottle was left. It wasn't a big decision. Hurry up, guys. Yeah. It was a full bottle of bourbon. We said, this is going to be a long, tough talk. And he changed his mind a lot because of the debate. He told me a lot about leadership. Now, I, I haven't thrown a chair at anybody in a long time, and I hope I, I, hope I won't uh, yeah. ever do that. But, but he was tough and... and uh, but it was interesting too. The idea was never, um, you know, two stores or 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 twenty stores or two hundred stores. It was, you know, we did the analysis. Roughly thirty stores per per market. Top thirty SMSAs, nine hundred. We rounded to a thousand. We're not successful unless we hit a thousand. Hmm. So it was, you got to drive it. We are, you know, you're in this and you're going to work a hundred hours a week until we're at a thousand. So I don't care if it's a year or 10 years. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, becoming a, you know, the largest franchisee, uh, you know, that's, that's a tough task in that you're having to sell the business model to people. Right. And. No, you know, it, you know what franchising taught me? Yeah, I think we naturally went into franchising for for three reasons. I think uh, one was we needed to get scale quickly. You know, uh, ten minute oil change, fourteen points is actually very complicated, but completely replicable. You can't. The only thing we could patent was the name. Everything else, we had people taking pictures and going through ten times. We knew what they were doing. Mm. Uh, They're going to be competitors of ours. You couldn't. You couldn't stop that. Um, so we needed to grow fast. We needed to make Jiffy Loop the predominant name. So branding was super important. So how do we do that? You know, if you need $100 million, uh, you got a franchise. You got to get other, you got to get partnership capital in. Capitalization for the, for the high potential venture is a, is a steep curve. And, and we knew we had to travel that very, very fast. The other thing was that it was a burgeoning idea. And we believed, it sounds schmaltzy, but from the football experience that we needed a team. A team would make better decisions than an individual. And the coach made the final, he called the play, but he took 11 players on that football team. He listened to what they had to say. And then we had to execute as a team. We took that same concept in franchising. 
you know, one of the things I do today is my one of my other jobs, uh, in addition to Babson, is I'm chairman of the board of Planet Fitness. Mm. Planet Fitness has 2,100 uh, gyms across America. It's yes. a hell of a team. Let me tell you, you listen to those franchisees and how they operate those stores, the way they innovate, the skin in the game they have. Let me tell you, an owner makes a difference. And I learned that on the football field. I learned that at Jiffy Loop, that it, this is, it, it's not about one or two people making a decision. It's about a team thinking big. And, and Jiffy Loop, that, that, that five guys, if we had thought this is going to be a market, one small market that will stay in Ogden, Utah, never would have worked. Make it global. We were, there was plenty of room for all of us to grow. Yeah. Um, in 1987, I believe you guys went public. Yeah. What how, an how, do, how, how does that change, you know, the business? Changes it a lot. Um, and, and we did the same thing at Planet Fitness, I don't know, five or six years ago, we took it public. Um, took it public at 30 and at today it's in the 80s. I'm very proud to say. Yeah. Um, and, and through COVID, a gym business and COVID, any business in, during COVID is tough. Yeah. Yeah, but, but boy, it's a it's a great company. Um, it, it changed the business in that sort of the entrepreneurial uh, mentality, especially back then, especially with the five of us, was we we'll get in the room, put the bottle in the middle of the room, throw a chair or two, and make a decision. Uh, now it was you know a much more formal board, uh, lots of reporting requirements, much more uh, discipline around that, and, and we had some hiccups in that, I think. Uh, that really taught me well, that if you're going to take public money, there's a responsibility there that is very, very, very significant. Mm. This isn't, this is a sort of a solemn promise that you're making to someone you never met that you're going to do everything you can to get them a return. It was a big lesson for me, a big, important lesson. Uh, you, you take someone's money, you better be committed uh, to, to bringing a return. And I learned that in the early Jiffy Loop days. Um, and, and frankly, it taught us a, a lot of discipline. Um, and, and I think that was good. And it, it made us expand beyond our, our boundaries of the five. We had to build out the team more. Uh, Pennzoil had a bigger say in, in what was going on. They're a big shareholder. So there was, a, there was a maturing of the organization that was very, very rapid. In terms of uh, selling, uh, do you have any, you know, uh, pieces of advice or, or stories on, on that process? Yeah, boy. <laughs> yeah, some I can tell, some I probably shouldn't tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you one of the stories that uh, is really interesting is um, this was really Jim, you know, Coach Heinemann uh, taught us this, is uh, when you start a business, think about who you'd sell it to. Or think about how it's going to be harvested. He may have said something else than harvest. Babson likes to, and I like the term harvest because yeah. I've got to plant the seed. I've got to grow it. I'm going to harvest it. Everybody's going to eat better. I, I do. I love that. Uh, but but when the day you start, I think about how you're going to harvest it. Um, and, and you think about growth in a different way. You, you're much more uh, disciplined about your capital allocation. You, know, you look for high potential ventures in that. So thinking about the exit early in the process was important. And, and we did. We said, if we can get in the top 30 standard metropolitan statistical areas and, and, and really dominate the market share there, there would be a lot of supply chain that would need us. You know, we could make the difference. Jiffy Lube could make the difference of who was number one or number two in the marketplace for motor oil. That's a, that's a power position in the, in the value cluster. 
So what's the power position? What is your role in that? What is your relationship to the rest of the value? And I like calling it a value cluster because it's much more three-dimensional. It's almost never linear. What is the advertising impact? What is the real estate impact? What's the banking impact? Those aren't in a linear relationship. They're all around you. And uh, we came early to believe that uh, we needed to have a big relationship with a major oil company and that we would build it to a point and we would say to them, it's time to buy it. And we said to them, it's time to buy it. And they said, yes. Yeah. And it became a matter of just negotiating price. Uh, you know, Steve, talk to me about, you know, your personal life, right? You're working, you know, maybe 12 hours a day. You're doing a part-time MBA. Um, you know, you're obviously motivated, you know, given your, you know, your family's background and not wanting to be poor, how did you manage your personal life during this time? That's another super good question. Sometimes you forget. I, I think um, I probably, in retrospect, romanticize it. Um, it. It's probably a better question for my wife, and because I was married through this this whole thing, uh, college sweetheart uh, marriage, still married, uh, happy to awesome. report. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, there's a lot of good reasons to stay married, but yeah. having a great partner is, is one of them, including the move to Babson and, and all of that kind of stuff. We also had, uh, you know, we, we started a family very quickly. So we had two little babies and that whole thing. But I think it is, uh, you know, you got to marry your partner in, in a lot of ways, um, having common values and common aspirations and, and having that discussion um, early, early and often. Uh, and continuing that discussion, we've been married for 43 years. So continuing that discussion for 43 years, moving back to the Boston area, taking the job as president of Babson, what does that mean? It was as much her decision as mine. Uh, and I think that's an important part of the whole, um, and not to be modeling about it, but learning how to be a good partner is a ubiquitous kind of skill. You've got to apply it across all of your life, I think. And uh, you know, with your business partners, with your life partner, with your children, with your community. I, I think uh, it's, it's super interesting that we talk about social and economic networks now, but uh, community has always been an important part of the human condition. And we, I don't know that we taught enough in business schools about what that means. And I think we're growing as, as business educators, as educators in general, and as entrepreneurs to believe that we are really building communities, not just commercial enterprises, that there's all aspects of your life. And, and going through that um, that whole experience, um, you know, growing the family and all of that. I mean, one of the reasons we sold it was because uh, we had plenty of money and it was time to be, a, you know, more of a dad and all of that. Yeah. So it, it's her decision. It was her decision to sell it as much as mine. You know, a lot of us, you know, in the 25 to 34 year old range are putting our careers ahead right? And we're putting our personal life in the back burner. Um, you know, I'm curious, given your background of, you know, during this time of becoming the largest franchisee, you know, you're married and also having kids. Um, you know, what would you say to that person that's, you know, I'm not even going to address my personal life. It's only career. No, you're making a mistake. Um, you are addressing your personal life by ignoring it. And that which gets ignored goes away. Um, so um, you, you make you, you have great risk in that. Uh, I you know I, I'll be really quantitative about it. 
if you take a long-term view and you want to optimize the net present value of your ability to create value, uh, you better take care of your family. You will be better at your job. You'll be happier. They'll be happier. You won't get divorced. Your kids will be happier. I can tell you there's cost to all of that uh, if you don't pay some attention. I, I think I had a particularly um, uh, uh, understanding wife, but she also made some demands um, that, you know, and, and sometimes at the time might have even rubbed me the wrong way, but too bad. Um, so I, I would pay, including the exit time. You know, she said, this is about getting there. Steve, you talk about capital gain. She's a musician. Mm-hmm. She said, okay, you know, this is the last stanza of this music. Let's, let's, you know, let's bring it home. So I think you got a common value. You know, when you find a partner, find one with common values and then listen closely to how you're building wealth together. You know, when I talk about a, a stakeholder uh, having a value definition, supplier, a banker, they're a, a, an advertiser, a partner. Your, your life partner has a value proposition too. Understand how they measure value and you'll just be a happier person. I, I think it is a really explicit discussion you should have with your family. You never felt like you struggled with, you know, hey, I'm, you know, spending, you know, time with my kids. I could be spending time on my business or. No, I like always that. struggled with it. Yeah. Okay. No, I, every day. Yeah. And, I, and at some level, I still do. Yeah. You know, it, tension isn't necessarily, you know, I, I make a lot of, I make a lot of mistakes, um, you know, going one way too far. You know, if you, if you, I, I like telling this to my, to my wife, if you expect perfection, I'm going to disappoint you about a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so no, I think the struggle is good. I think you should struggle. If you're not struggling with it, you're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. So be explicit in, in that. So just don't, don't ignore it. Uh, if, if you're explicit, you'll, you'll start to make good trade-offs and you'll, and I'm telling you, you'll be happier for it. How did, how did fatherhood change you? Uh, yeah, another really interesting question. What, 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 um, do, do you ask everyone this or? Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's the personal yeah, it's and the really, professional. Really yeah. Grateful living is the whole, whole, the whole person. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. You know, I think what it did was um, uh, forced me to be more three-dimensional. I was, uh, I think... Um, two-dimensional, uh, you know, it was me and uh, my wife and my business and um, the, the two were a bit separate and driving 100% of the time. When you threw the kids in, which, you know, at, at the beginning, uh, they're crying and pooping and want food and there's, and, and you have this immediate af- affection. It's just you know, God knew what he was doing or she knew what he, they, they were doing. Yeah. Uh, so you have this immediate affection. You almost don't know how to handle it, but it stretches you in, in lots of different ways. And I found myself being emotionally stretched, um, sometimes painfully, but mostly positively. Mm-hmm. And I think it helped me be more understanding. It's certainly, I think it made me a better husband. Again, I should ask my wife that question. Maybe I will when I yeah. go home. Um, but I think it made me a better person um, to understand what was driving the, the, the level of, uh, of sort of commitment. It's, think about this. You meet this person in, in a nanosecond, you're committed. 
bizarre phenomenon when you yeah. sort of from a logical perspective it makes no sense yeah. uh, but it but if you embrace that then you say wow that's cool and and it allows you i think to grow as a person then you start to say well what does commitment mean and what does it mean in other relationships in my life so i'm not sure i was that explicit when i was going through it i'm sure i was not yeah uh, but I, I think it helped me grow better partner with my business partners, better member of the community, all of those kinds of things, because I was so committed to these two little individuals. Yeah. So I, I cut you off, but 1992, you were about to talk about, you made the transition to do a PhD in economics at Imperial College London. You know, again, talk to us about that decision, because we have this backdrop of, of two kids, different country you know, bizarre. How, how, what's the, what's the, what's the thought I mean, process? Well, you know, it was really interesting. It, you know, we sell a company that I, I never allowed myself to believe that I'd actually have the money until it cleared the check cleared and <laughs> see it. And I yeah. looked again and I can <laughs> verify it. Yeah. Whew. Oh, wait, now what? And it really was, let's just take a deep breath here. Cause I just didn't want, to be able to say, I wanted to be able to say, no, I'm not selling it because this isn't the right deal or whatever. And once you start counting the money, you, you've sold the company. Yep. So, um, so then we get it. And then so my, my wife and I started having long conversations. I had a lot of time <laughs> versus what, what I was doing before. So we had a lot of long conversations about what was the next adventure. And we would talk in terms of adventure. I think those are, are good romantic kinds of terms, but they're human terms too. Mm going to do something really special together. So what's the next adventure that we're going to have? I said, you know, I had this whole, the Babson thing, thought and action, it was so important. And I think there's a, a role there. I get so excited just going to a class. Imagine if I could teach a class. Wow, that would be cool. And I think I could really get into that. Mm. And she said, that's great. I want to go to Europe. I've always thought, let's live in Europe and uh, we could explore and you can go to Paris. And I said, Okay. <laughs> and we said, well, I'll do a PhD. We'll move to Europe. Um, so it was her idea to go to Europe. It was my idea to do the PhD. Uh, and then it was, it was really the Babson Entrepreneurial Research Conference and Bill Bygraven. I don't know if that name is still uh, around Babson, but he was my, one of my professors at Babson. Uh, absolute genius. He had a PhD in business and a PhD in physics. PhD in physics was from either Oxford or Cambridge. He'd be mad at me for not knowing the difference, uh, but that's how smart he was. Yeah. And he said, you ought to, if you're going to go to London, you ought to think about Imperial College, which is one of the best schools in the world. And it's very quantitative and it's very disciplined and you'll learn how to do research. They will beat you to death. Mm. And you're a lot of energy and you're reasonably bright, but uh, this kind of discipline you have never experienced, you ought to do that. And I went over and, and met uh, a professor there who was still a dear friend, Sue Burley, who I think is also a genius. Um, Carol fell in love with London. I fell in love with Imperial College, made a lot of sense, and we moved over. It was great for the kids, too. Great uh, story about the kids is they, they went to a school in London, and they had to draw a map of where they were, of where they were from, because yeah. a lot of kids were an international school. Yeah. And when I draw the map, the United States is in front of me and then the rest of the world. Yeah. When they drew the map, the Atlantic Ocean was in front of them and London was there. It was an interesting cool. uh, 
you know, different, talking about perspective, yeah. what, you know, it changed their perspective of the world at, at a very young age, you know, six and eight or some such uh, years like that. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting statement about education and how to bring up your kids with a bigger view of the world. If, we, if you want to talk about diversity, you've got to give them diverse experiences. So afterwards, you, you come back to Babson, um, you move up, you know, from a professor, faculty member, all the way to vice provost uh, for entrepreneurship and global management by 2007. Um, kind of just, you know, as you look, I mean, obviously a long period, you know, t- 10 plus years, but as you look at that time period, um, you know, what stands out um, for you and, and how you were able to grow uh, that much? Yeah, you know, I went from uh, actually an instructor to uh, a tenured uh, faculty member and, and a lot of respect for the process of getting tenure and how hard it is. I mean, I, I was worried and I worked hard and it, um, getting the PhD was a big deal in my life. I never saw myself doing that. So getting it was a big deal. And then I thought, God, you got to now do something with it. And getting <laughs> tenure was this yeah. sort of statement that I you know, was putting it to, but you assume it was really hard and how hard it is to, to teach and do research and do the writing uh, and do service to the college and that sort of holistic uh, thing. And, and, and in a lot of ways was um, almost a fantasy. It just was so interesting and, and you know, sort of a whole new life. Um, but it really um, underscored the, again, the Babson thought and action thing that you can you can think deeply and act decisively. And it really shaped how I, I thought about my role in, in academia. I said, I don't have to be different as a professor than I was as an entrepreneur. What are the objectives? How do I create value? What is the value definition for a student? What is the value definition for a colleague or for a parent? And if I can understand how they see value, I'm going to be a better professor. And I have this wonderful set of colleagues that I, I, I can add value to. And this whole ecosystem is, you know, feels like a franchise. It's sort of, a, I'm an independent player, but I'm in a system and I'm in a division and I'm a part of Babson. And I just, I, I had a ball and I can't help myself. So I just kept going and they kept promoting me, you know. So I kept saying, yeah, let's, let's keep doing other stuff. Uh, and, and we did a, just, we did a lot. You know, it's interesting when I was a student, and even when I was an early professor, entrepreneurship wasn't an academic division at Babson. It was wow. part of the management division. Mm. And uh, me, Bill Bygrave, and Jeff Timmons said, uh, it's time for us to be an academic division, to grow into an academic division. Got a lot of pushback from a lot of people around that. Well, you can't really teach entrepreneurs that whole silly story that now we've proven to be false. Um, and we were one of the first colleges in America to take it to that level. So, you know, it's another first for, for Babson College uh, in, in that period. And we, you know, we grew substantially. I remember the first time we got ranked number one uh, in entrepreneurship, but, you know, it was a huge celebration. And, you know, we were, we had a ride. Yeah. Every, every time we get ranked number one for the 27 years following that or 25 years following that, um, now it's a relief. You know, when we got ranked number one, this time I went, yeah. oh, thank God. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, 2007, Philadelphia University calls, um, you know, talk to us about that transition and becoming the president there. 
Uh, yeah, it's a, a big, difficult, interesting decision. I really had to make a decision. Did I want to be uh, a professor or did I want to be an administrator? You know, did, did I seek which way? And I was vice provost, which meant I was sort of half one, one foot in each of those camps. Um, and uh, I said, you know, I got, I've been a professor and I've done that. Uh, I got to try. Yeah, and, and some of it's ego, uh, some of it's aspiration, um, uh, some of it's adventure, uh, and, and some of it's luck. Uh, my, my wife is from New Jersey, just on the other side of Philly, mm. and her father was older and needed help. And so moving to Philadelphia, there was a personal interface. And so Carol was, there were a lot of schools I had talked to, uh, and she had veto rights. Again, the part of that partnership thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, which really works. I, she kept me out of a lot of bad decisions. <laughs> I have to tell you, the due yeah. diligence was great. And she's yeah. tough. Um, she, she's the smartest person I ever met. She got one B. It was a B plus in high school, college, and graduate school. Everything else was an A, not even an A minus. Wow. She got a near perfect score in her SAT. So the whole IQ thing, I was at a real disadvantage. <laughs> I was always the one that had to work harder because it just came to her so easy. Yeah, that drove, drives me out of my mind that um, she had that extra IQ, in, natural in, talent. But but yeah. she was she was supportive of going to Philly uh, for lots of those personal and professional reasons, um, and and it was a super interesting uh, opportunity for me because it. Philadelphia University started as the Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science. It was the first textile college in, in the world. And it um, really was about professional education. Not all that different, just much more narrow than, than Babson was, so to speak. By the time I got there, it was Philadelphia University and had expanded to lots of professional fields, business, engineering, science, um, healthcare, uh, design, big architecture school, uh, but it was, um, the economics of the school were, uh, were thin. Uh, so it, it was, this was a very intense management position and the board, when they hired me, were, were very upfront about they expected executive management at some very acute level. They were hiring an entrepreneur because they needed an entrepreneur. Mm. Yeah. They, they hired me more for being an entrepreneur than being an educator to mm. be perfectly frank about it. Yeah. So go run this company, Steve, and do something important here. So uh, we did that for, for a long time. We, we, we grew the enrollment, we grew the reputation, we grew the finance. We had a positive margin every year I was there. I'm very proud of that. Um, and then, um, you know, as we saw market forces, it was an opportunity to merge. And mergers in uh, higher education are very, or mergers are hard. M&A work is hard work. Yeah. In higher education, it's really fraught because of alumni groups and uh, emotional attachments and yep. all that neat kind of stuff. But, and going through a merger with a multi-billion dollar health system education plus university was just a fascinating experience. But we created, uh, I think, one of the country's most interesting professional universities. You still It's still all the same majors we have, but now we add a nursing school and a, and a medical school to it, um, double the size or, or more than double the size. So it's eight or 9,000 students, two campuses relatively close together um, and, and climbing in the rankings, financially doing really well, great health system 
to be a part of. So there's lots of connection to industry, not only in the hospitals, but in the, even in the uh, venture capital that in the technologies and the health technologies, and the architecture and all of that. Um, it is, I, I think, a, and, and I may be uh, you know, seeing this through rose-colored glasses, so I'm just being full yeah, disclosure yeah, here. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, I think, a, at least an early example of an educational ecosystem and how that will expand. The whole uh, connection to practice in a very specific way, the embedded lifelong learning that occurs. The medical profession is, I think, the best in the world at a lifelong learning. It is a requirement. There's no yeah. Uh, uh, and we can learn from that in architecture and in business. Uh, and I learned a lot about lifelong learning through that. And I think that model of Thomas Jefferson University, I'm very proud of being its first chancellor um, and bringing it to uh, this really interesting model. I, I'm crossing my fingers and betting on them. I, I yeah. think it's a great school. Yeah. Can you speak to, you know, obviously, you know, when you're at Babson, there's the brand is already there. But when you're going to this new university, nobody knows who you are, like, you know, the people under you, you know, creating that vision and making them believe in what you were, you know, like saying and, and, and like changing the culture. Um, can, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it's really, really interesting, really hard, um, you know, and I don't know how well I did. Um, I, I can tell you how I did it in, in that. We were at least as a business model and as a school, we were successful. We grew and we had a positive margin and our rankings went up. I'm, I don't know if the community fully believed in it or not. I'll leave that to, to them to, to speak to. Um, but what, what, I, what we really said was, what are we really, what is special about this place? What makes you different? Why are you still in existence? Why, why? You know, you, you have very thin margins. You don't have any endowment. Um, you don't have a brand. Why are you still in existence? What do you, you must be doing something right. What's going on here? And there were two things that they were exceptional at. The, the first one was the built environment. And they knew design, architecture, industrial design, interior design. They were really good. And their graduates were going out and doing super special things. And they were taking, you know, kids that might have even struggled in high school and they lit them on fire with design. And those kids went out and did some super cool stuff. Mm. Still have some friends in, in the fashion business and in design that, have, you know, they're just the coolest people in the world. And frankly, they made me think about entrepreneurship differently. They look at the world in much broader terms and they say, that's a palette, baby, I'm going to paint. Mm. And it, it, oh, man, that'll just open your mind to potential of opportunity. And because of that design mentality, you are necessarily have to do more uh, transdisciplinary understanding. You have to bring things, you have to synthesize. And so they would bring color and economics or health and architecture together as in a natural way of thinking. So you're a, you're a, a nurse. What's the first thing you got to do? Well, I got to go into the room and look at what, where are the patients and what are the patients concerned with? And they would ask questions that didn't, I'm a nurse. What's wrong with you is my friend. They're looking at the environment around it. And they, they taught me so much about 
transdisciplinary education. What they were doing and didn't call it that was transdisciplinary education. And I always say that this is a discipline, this is interdiscipline, this is transdiscipline. And, they, and that strong fist of education, they built beautifully. So we created the, a college of design, engineering, and commerce. They had three, the, the design was really good. Engineering was tiny, but really good. And commerce was burgeoning, was a new field for them. So, you know, design was what is desirable, engineering, what is feasible, commerce or business, what is profitable, what is valuable. So when we put them together and we said, all the stuff you're, you're teaching, we're gonna do it in a formalized curriculum. And the thing took off. And enrollment grew, uh, contributions grew from alums, they got excited. Uh, our students started getting more, hired more. Everybody got, was proud of this innovation and, and things started going really well. And then yeah. Jefferson was interested and here we go. Yeah. So December of 2018, um, Babson, you know, obviously is, is called by then um, and your president-elect, um, you know, tell us about that transition. Yeah, uh, strange, uh, because I had made a decision to sort of retire, or at least retire from education and move close to where my grandchildren are. Again, my wife made that decision. Yeah. Super, you know, I, I got it. Um, so, so we um, bought a house up here a couple of miles from our grandchildren. And I was going to go, you know, I got a lot of board work and I was doing lots of speeches and I could pontificate about lots of stuff. And I had fun and yeah. lots of Christmas. And uh, we, we connected with Babson again. And um, it, there was a bit of a time warp. Uh, in there, you know, and I had to sort of adjust my mind around what has happened to Babson over the last 11 years is a very different place. Mm. And it was, a, or, or it was a different place. I'm not sure about very different. Um, but, but if it didn't change, that, that would have been horrible. Yeah. Uh, if you didn't do any growing for 11 <laughs> years. So it was really saying, I had to go in every day and challenge my concept of what the college was and challenge myself to to let that go and say, what is and what can be, not what was. Not, what was helps me get a little bit faster start. The history of entrepreneurship, the Jeff Timmons lessons, the Bill Bygrave lessons, the, uh, the, the, the Bill Glavin, great president, uh, the lessons he taught me. Um, you know, uh, Alan Cohen, Nan Langowitz, there were a lot of, I don't want to call them old, but faculty that were here that uh, I remember the lessons they taught me, but I can learn from those lessons, but then say, what is here now? And, and I had to learn a lot. Um, I can tell you the, the, frankly, the quality of the teaching was always really high. And I always felt pressure in the classroom. You better deliver. It's gotta be high about It's better. And I remember being a little stunned by that. Because I would go from classroom to classroom and say, well, that was a good teacher. I, I got lucky. I you know, stumbled into her classroom. And she must be one of the best. And I go to and I said, holy cow, they're really good. And I started thinking, man, I don't know if I could compete in this environment. These guys can teach. I, I, I just was really, really impressed uh, by that. Then I was, um, that, that was a, a sort of the startling, oh, wow, everybody's on the A game. Here. So if you're not an all-star, you're not teaching at Babson. Then the amount of um, sort of interdisciplinary, I'm not sure transdisciplinary, to be honest, but interdisciplinary research was profound too. 
and I said they've taken the, the interdisciplinary research and a bigger view of re research to a higher level. So there's been a lot of maturity in that and with bigger themes. Uh, the environment was really studied well here and the scholarship around that is pretty impressive. And I read, I, I think I read a hundred papers on that and 50 of them I didn't understand. I had to go talk to the professor and say, man, this is, this is really first class scholarship uh, that you're doing. And then the, um, the sort of the, the built environment was um, well kept, you know, and it's interesting. I didn't pay attention to that when I was a professor, to be honest. And I go to Philadelphia University and the, um, the, the deferred maintenance was significant. So we had to raise a lot of money. We built new buildings, we did it, but that was a big job to, to put in a lot of capital. And I came here and I said, wow, built environment's in pretty good shape. So we can start to think about, I had to say, we have to think about two big things. One was the graduate program. There had been a decline across the country in MBA level education, and including here, the number of students getting an MBA, and a burgeoning thinking around a bigger portfolio of master's degree programs. We developed, uh, they were in the process of developing those programs, had done some programs. So supporting the development of a portfolio of graduate programs was important uh, and has yielded great uh, results over the last three years to where it's growing like crazy. Um, you know, some people would argue it's growing too much. Uh, there's a big demand for the Babson brand uh, in, in graduate education. Uh, so, I, you know, we, we worked hard uh, around that. Um, and then in, what was the next step in the entrepreneurship brand? You know, we're number one, which gives you, um, you know, a, a tight chest during the next rankings period. So yeah. you, you better be working to get to be better. Good, better, best, never, never rest. And so, you know, we focused very hard with the community around the strategic planning process and what would elevate uh, the brand. And there was just a wonderful process maybe 1,000, 1,100 people from the community, it's all well-documented, uh, were involved in writing the strategic plan and, and elevating the brand. And that's where we got to entrepreneurial leadership as a lever on the entrepreneurial process in entrepreneurship. Makes it a much more ubiquitous application, much more human-centric around how we build entrepreneurs of all kinds. Now, all this thinking was in place before I got here. I, I think I added some focus around that um, and some specific understanding, especially about entrepreneurship. Um, and that then, you know, led us to discussions with our alums and some incredible support from Mr. Blank and lots of other alums in an incredibly generous community here and a number of faculty members who are just brilliant in, in leadership and brilliant in entrepreneurship. And when you put two, the two together, we can carve a whole new path and expand the Babson brand. I, I, boy, there's 10 years of new research that we can do that can inform business education. I think we can revolutionize entrepreneurship education. I think we can influence business education. I think we can influence education with a human-centric empowerment of the individual to go create value in whatever role you're in. That For me, that's really exciting. And I think Babson has embraced that. And because of the, the support of alums and, and the uh, tenacity of great Professors, and I, I hate naming names because I miss people, but you know Scott Taylor and, and Dana Greenberg and uh, Jeff uh, uh, Shea and and Don Eleven, they're they're doing already doing great work uh, in entrepreneurial leadership. It's going to just keep going, 
Uh, so I, I'm so bullish about the future as we come out of this pandemic, of what, what the potential for Babson is in an educational ecosystem where we are about entrepreneurial leaders. I don't care if you're a musician or an artist or a doctor. Um, being an entrepreneurial leader is going to leverage your influence on society and help you create value for your stakeholders. Wow. What a great role for Babs. Yeah. You know, you, you, you talked about it there a lot. You know, there were so many different areas uh, for a president, right? There's fundraising, there's enrollment, there's finances, there's the alumni, um, you know, there's a the student experience, there's the professors. How do you balance all that like do you just have certain goals like you know maintaining number one entrepreneurship like increasing enrollment by this like how how do you balance balance all that what i try to do i, I don't know that i do balance it um, i think i stress out sometimes i think i make mistakes other times so um you know sometimes when you talk about balancing it, it means you were right i'm, I'm not so Sure, you know, there's a lot of times that I'm bumping into a wall, uh, and especially during COVID where you, you just worry about, listen, I always worried about making money, not making money, but that's nothing like, will someone get sick or not? Mm. It's a whole different level of risk. Yeah. So it's been a unique experience. Yeah. But I really try to get back to how connected are we to the vision and the mission and the strategy and the tactics of the college? as well developed in our strategic planning process before I got here, entrepreneurship is core to humanity. Do we still believe that as an organization? Am I supporting that? The mission is entrepreneurial thought and action to create social and economic value, and that there is no boundary between those. They are intimately woven, and we will create and educate entrepreneurial leaders. Can, can we look at this community and can this community make a decision about what all of that means? And can we prioritize our actions against that rubric? You know, if, if we're doing that, I think we're, we're, we're going to make tons of mistakes. You know, do you know who Babe Ruth was? Yeah. You should never use sports analogies, but I <laughs> no, can't. No, I, I love Babe Ruth. Okay. Babe Ruth said, uh, if I was afraid to strike out, I'd never come to the plate. Hmm. So you, you know, he, I think his lifetime average was 315. That means 60% of the time he made an out. And he's one of the best baseball players in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're going to make some mistakes. But if you prioritize what you're doing, then, then I think we have a shot at doing something really special. And, and uh, listen, our applications are, are through the roof. The quality of our students is scary uh, good. Uh, we have more diversity than we ever had in the history of the college. The marketplace is responding to us in a big way. Uh, the, the value of a Babson degree is worth more today than it was when I got mine. Uh, and that's part of my job. And, that, and maybe that ultimately is, is, is my measure. Is your life better because you, you were a Babson graduate? And we did okay. Now I'll get judged over many, many years by many different people, but that's the ultimately what our role is. You know, uh, there may be parents or uh, students who are considering Babson, uh, you know, as as the college to go to, um, you know, given that we're still in the pandemic, do you want to talk about how you've handled the pandemic? Sure. Um, I, uh, man, I think about it every day, almost every minute of every day. It's been really bizarre. We, we set up, we, we sort of set some key guidelines 
key principles early in the process, and I mean very early, within the first week. Health and safety of the community, academic continuity and excellence. So again, if you set priorities and you have good guidelines and you have a true north, then the organizations you know, can, can gyrate to, to get there. And so everything we've done, it goes through that rubric. Um, then we said, you know, we think that there's going to be three phases to this, and, and there's some adjustment I'll, I'll tell you about. And, this, you know, we're, we're going to have to survive. We don't know what this is. You, you go back two years ago in March and COVID, uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't know what, what this, this really means. And we know so much more now, but we said, we got to survive. We got to protect this community. We got to be healthy. We got to make sure we have the financial architecture in place. And we, every single day, focused on survival uh, in that. Then we said, you know, if, when we survive, um, th there's going to be a lot of stuff and we don't know what the impact's going to be. So we have to revive. Remember, I'm a retailer. So I say things in ways I can remember. Being a retailer who's getting old, you really have to say things that way. <laughs> you, you forget yeah. too much. So it was survive and revive. And then if we do that right, we can thrive. So survive, revive, and thrive. I, I'm fairly certain <laughs> we're, we're gonna survive. I, you know, we're going through a rough patch now and the infection rates are gonna be very, very high. But my expectation is, or the, not mine, the expectation of the health experts is that um, it will not be as, it is not as serious a health threat and we'll be through it fairly quickly. And, and we're going through a revival. What did we learn? What from those lessons will we keep and be a part of this community? And what will we um, go back to or advance to? And, and really, I, I prefer the advance to. What did we learn and how do we advance? What do we embrace and what do we reject? How do we come together as a community? I, I've never seen a more stressful environment for as long a period of time in, in my life. Uh, and you know, it reminds me of my father telling stories of World War II and the stress that people felt. And I don't mean that, you know, I don't know if it's the same thing or not, but mm. that's, I remember those stories. Um, and, and we've got to come together as a community. We have to, we have to believe in each other. We have to believe in this mission. You have to believe entrepreneurship is core to humanity and that we really are the best in the world. And if we do that, we've been able to, and because of the generosity of our, of our community, because I, I think a good strategic plan written by, you know, a vast majority of, of the members of this community, we are, we are, I think the delta between us and, and the number two player in entrepreneurship is now bigger. And I think the world's recognition that entrepreneurship is a, it can be taught and is a, a, a competency. It's almost a required competency rather than a, a competitive advantage. You better be entrepreneurial or I, you know, the world's gonna treat you harshly. Mm. So that means the market demand expands dramatically. But what do we do with that? Well, that's part of our future. That's so, you know, it was health and safety of the community, uh, academic continuity and excellence, survive, revive and thrive. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are going to be looking at this interview who are in academia, right? And whether they're 22 and they're an assistant director of something or they're, you know, 30 and an associate director or whatever, or they're a dean, you know, you've been able to move up right from an instructor all the way to president uh you know what type of advice would you give to someone on you know obviously babson's probably a little 
you know, uh, in terms of speed is obviously a lot faster than traditional, you know, academic institutions in terms of making decisions and things like that. But, you know, in terms of moving up in academia, do you have any pieces of advice? Well, I, yeah. Decide what moving up means to you, not, not what it means to the world. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of professors here um, who are writing papers and teaching classes that are having such a dramatic impact on their students that they're moving the world up in their career. So uh, they're in the right place. They are moving up big time. Um, uh, you know, I would never have been as good a researcher. I, I was not as good a teacher. Um, so my advice is to decide what moving up means to you. Don't let the world impose it on you. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, just looking at the time, um, present, thank you for, for everything, um, that you, you're really good at this job. I gotta tell you, your, your voice, your modulation, your questions, your, your respectful probing. I'm, you can cut this out of the tape if you want, but (laughs) you're really good. I appreciate it. It means a lot. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, just looking at the time, uh, I want to be respectful, but, um, you know, uh, uh, a lot of people look up to you, right? And you have a lot of knowledge. You've lived a very successful life, you know, whether it's it's professional life, personal, you know, is there anything that's on your mind or anything that you would um, want to share with, you know, someone in terms of, you know, a piece of advice that has always kind of kept you grounded or helped you um, through through your entire life? Well, you know, you've got to be careful. You ask a, a, an old president a question like that that could go on for another three hours. I won't, <laughs> to, I won't subject you to that. But, you know, there's, I've, I've gotten a lot of great advice. So, you know, the, the role of mentor and friend is, um, I think, an important part of what higher education is about. And one of the great parts of the Babson community is we have so many of our professors and administrators and staff who are great mentors who know how to be friends. And I think it's a very special part of this community. So I would look at those relationships and say, you know, honor your mentors and make them your friends. Yeah. Um, President Smiley, uh, if, if anybody wants to support you or your mission, um, what's the best way for them to do that? You know, I, I have to tell you, there, there is, uh, there are a couple of ways. And, and uh, remember, I'm a college president. So if you ask me that, I'm going to say that the percentage of our alums who give makes a big difference to the, the health and, and well-being of this community. And I, I'm not telling you how much send in a buck or send in a million. Uh, but, but think about making a contribution to Babson. And you can direct it scholarships or to your uh, research fund for your favorite professor, I, w- whatever it is. If you can support Babson with a dollar or a million, thank you. And, and I, I love you for it. Um, I would also ask you to um, in, engage in the life of the community and think of us as, you know, this whole mentor and friend as, as mentors and friends for, for life. That, that we really are, lifelong learning is really lifelong engagement as a community. And think about where you can be a part, how you can be a part of this community forever. Uh, I really mean that it's one of the last, colleges are one of the last bastions of community building. 
the boys clubs and girls clubs or the churches are, it's more difficult. Everything is harder, but campuses and communities and colleges are really this core of, of uh, what we are as, as a society. So play in that. Don't, don't, don't leave that community. Stay with us. Yeah. Well, uh, President Spinelli, I just want to thank you for being on, you know, uh, you know, I don't know if you have time to reflect, but, you know, from from the son of a, a postal clerk to to president of uh, Babson College, that's quite the the life and, and to be able to do it, um, you know, while continuing to, you know, value your partner, get married, have kids, you know, value her opinion and kind of emphasize those points to all of a, the young people listening here today. Um, it was thank you for for coming on. We really appreciate it. I, honored. I really do mean you, you've got uh, real talent and you should keep going. Thank you. That means a lot. Appreciate it.